Welcome back. Welcome in. Let us begin another week here at earsports.com. I am Mike Casaza here to empty the Q&A mailbag once again with Chris Anderson. Chris, quality and quantity of questions. How is it different today versus a week ago from today? <laughs> a little more upbeat. Uh, I think there was actually a question in here that said that implied that West Virginia's offense played mistake-free football on Saturday. Did you know that? Mistake-free. Everything's relative. <laughs> Everything is relative. Um, it was some good questions. Another, you know, usual usual amount, but certainly a more upbeat look at this program after a win over number sixteen Kansas State, rather than a loss to then one and three Texas Tech. You reviewed the weekend of the Big Twelve. You've resorted your power rankings. You have your big takeaways. I don't know if you've rewatched the game, but upon second glance, third glance, what have you. Anything stand out? Anything different from Saturday in Morgantown or beyond? No, I don't really change much about my thoughts. You know that was shared on post game from this Kansas State game. I mean, it was what it was. I nothing really caught me off guard. I think I went back and especially after going over the pro football focus thing and looking at the snaps and the grades, a couple things caught my eye that I wanted to. Was like, wait, really? Was it like that? Um, you know, and, and and we have given our readers fair warning that, one, the grades are subjective, and two, snap counts and such are, are what they are. Uh, don't take them 100% rock solid. Uh, we think they are very good. Otherwise, we wouldn't share them. But they're not perfect. Nothing is. And, you know, one of the things I, I first thing that popped my mind was the James Committer thing. It was like, three snaps? Nah, he definitely played more than that. And I went back and looked and... He definitely played more than that. Um, so I'm I'm curious how he kind of graded out. He looked pretty good. There was he he got uh, the second drive, I think, at left guard in place mm-hmm. of Frazier. And then I don't remember if it was the next drive or two drives later when Chase Barrett went out temporarily and Frazier slid over to center and Gamitter came in at left guard. Um that was that was the offensive line for the Letty Brown touchdown run. Was yeah. Frazier at center and, and Gamitter at guard, and that had already put him past three snaps. So there were some things went back and looked, but not just nitpicky stuff like that, and and nothing really changed uh, from my opinion post game. You? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say uninspired offense before the hot streak in that second quarter, and then just I can't can't get around good there on the red zone when they want to be good in the red zone, um, and it just seems like it always corresponds to them going tight. And, you know, having a spread formation, but having it compact and they're really good on the edges and they're good when they're whatever their outside is, when they're compact in the red zone, like Ollie Jennings, for example, he's not like at the numbers, barely the hashes, but they're really good outside in, too. And so if you're good inside out because you're playing compact and you're good outside in because you have that edge out there, you're going to be tough to stop. So, I mean, you can't argue with these numbers. Twenty five straight scores in the red zone is pretty good and you're getting touchdowns on most of these. So I like that. Um, and I don't really chalk the second half offensively up to anything. Uh, I think that sometimes they took some chances because Kansas State was getting free runs at their running backs, just basically saying these guys are going to run three times a punt or run, 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 and kick a field goal or whatever because they had the lead. And I wouldn't take much in the second half offensively. I just think look at three possessions and however many plays it was, you know, 15 plays, 20 plays, I have to look at it. But they were sharp, and I thought they had a really good game plan on third down. Most of all being – avoid third down which funny how that works mm-hmm. so I, I mean i think brown gets a lot of heat sometimes about what's the plan what's the identity 
from start to finish, it looked like they had a plan. They had an identity. They had them solved on third down. I thought before the game started, it looked like. And then what's their plan? What's their identity? They just want to win. So they got a lead. They played it smart and got out of there. I mean, they knew exactly they knew exactly how they could play that game and get to the finish line, and they did. So I think that's a, a progressive development for them. So let me let me kick off the Q and A with my own Q, and you give me the A. Where or is it possible? Is it realistic for West Virginia to? I don't want to say full time, but transition that red zone offense to the full field. Is that realistic? Is that something that can translate to you know running a play at the forty or fifty yard line? I'm not sure you could be very good running the ball like explosively there because it's going to be hard to get out of that box. You can maybe score it out from 12 or 10 or 7 yards to get a touchdown or get it down there to where you can hammer it in. But are you are you going to see Sinkfield or Brown split the guard center, split the guard tackle, and break a 20-yard run that way? Probably not because you've got everybody inside. Uh, but they do, they do some stuff that's similar to that. Like they'll bunch receivers on one side – and they'll they'll kind of load things up with the tight end. So there's there's elements of it. Um, I just think it's really good in the red zone. And I think that there's times where they can spread you out and they can be effective. And they were really good by being spread out and just picking Kansas State apart in the middle, which we kind of predicted that it was going to be a middle of the field game. And that worked out for them too. So I don't I don't think it'd be a conventional offense, but I think that's fine. I think if it's conventional in the red zone, hey, you can't argue those numbers. And on a related note, another question from the mailbag. This is from Unka Dub and kind of touches on those tight ends and, and the personnel look for West Virginia and what they're successful with. Um, he noted that WV had a lot of success using 11 personnel, meaning one running back, one tight end, and oftentimes would take a tight end, line them up in the backfield for sort of a 20 look, two running backs, but one of them being a tight end. Um, have the have the coaches given any thought to going with 12 personnel, the two tight ends, or maybe creating a 10-20 look, or do you think the team doesn't have the pass-catching tight end to really make that work mike well they only have two tight ends i mean charlie finley's there and he's going to be there for a while but if you're going to run two and you have that built into your game plan if one of them gets hurt or gets ejected or, or whatever then your game plan is gone because i don't think finley's going to be able to step in and play tj banks or michael lachlan's role so um rarely if ever do you see them on the field outside of that goal line or a short yardage thing in the middle of the field I don't know where they are as receivers. O'Loughlin, they're, they're moving O'Loughlin everywhere. I mean, he's been out wide. He was out wide in that, that deep fade pass to Simmons. He lines up in the slot. He lines up attached. He lines up in an H-back's body, motions into the backfield. They're doing a ton with him, and I'm assuming it's because they think he can handle anything. And he's catching the ball, and he's making people miss after tackles attempted now. Banks, I just don't know about it. He's a really good blocker in the line, and he can run out and catch that pass in the flat. I just haven't seen much of him, but I know that kid's really athletic, and he had he had offers to play defensive end at Power 5 schools. So there's something there with him. But again, their offense is actually okay. Like, overall, their yards per game is fine. Like, I was looking at that today. They're second in the conference in, in yards per game. Did you know that? I was stunned. And they're only, like, 30 yards behind Oklahoma. Uh, you know, I think they – I was stunned. I hadn't seen that stat. But similarly, uh, I believe they're third in the Big 12 in scoring. I was like, wait, wait. West Virginia is third in the Big 12 in scoring offense. Yeah, apparently. Um, on that personnel look with the tight ends, I think O'Laughlin is a guy, a pass-catching tight end. You can have at least, you know, in high school he was a receiver. 
he was a wide receiver. He wasn't even really a tight end. Uh, obviously, I think everybody assumed he'd grow into a tight end just because of his size. So I think he has the ability to be that pass catching tight end full time if you need him. But I'm not sure you can go with that personnel. One for the reasons you noted. You know, they only have two two guys who are ready to play tight end right now. And also, you know, they spend all off season, all fall camp installing an offense and installing plays and repping those plays to perfect them and get them ready. And yes, they apparently have a handful of plays that they have installed and, and repped that includes this personnel and includes the tight ends. But I certainly wouldn't say that the entire offense centers around that, nor have they practiced that abundantly. So I think switching kind of midstream like that midseason is not a recipe for success. So I think you still need to kind of use it when you can, maybe increase the usage slightly because they have had success with it, but it's not something like a wholesale change they can make mid-year, even if they did have the bodies. Yeah, and one thing on the offense and the stats, stats are deceiving. I get that. I'm looking this season at just versus conference opponents when I really want to get to the nitty-gritty, and they're seventh in points and fourth in yards. Fourth in yards is okay, but yards can be yards can be kind of some fool's gold. Seventh in points is, is eh, and then you're talking defensive touchdown in there too, so... I do like the fact of got points in the board in a variety of ways, but I do wonder if you can go in. Can you can you get field goals more often than not in the red zone against a Texas and win? I don't. That's that's a no. risk for me. Oklahoma, <laughs> no, you can't. So a little bit more efficient, but again, I just man, I, I think they have a chance to get seven every time they're in the red zone now, which you could not say last year. Um, on a related note, you you mentioned the tight ends going into the slot and and lining up in different spots. From Misty Taste, does it seem the Sam that Sam James has found a permanent home in the slot? I mean, he's their fourth receiver now, right? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think so. Wheaton's ahead of him, Wright's ahead of him, Simmons is ahead of him, and that's probably him, right? And Sean Ryan played 25 more staffs than Sam James did. Didn't have a catch, so I'm not sure that'll continue, but... Um, I don't know, James just kind of, uh, I don't want to say he's a ancillary part, but he kind of is now. He's just one of those those guys that's in there and, and catching balls when they throw it to him, and it's not that often he's on the field. He, I don't, I've had to look at the snaps. I feel like he played in the slot most of the game. I don't think he was targeted a ton. But also, that might be best for Sam James. Is he a guy that needs to get eight or, eight or nine or ten passes thrown to him? Is he going to produce if you get throw eight or nine passes to him? No, the numbers say he's going to get you like 80 yards receiving on eight or, eight or nine catches. I kind of liked their attack the other day where, hey, make him defend these eight guys who can catch passes. Number 15 is going to come on the field. He's going to play four snaps, but he's going to probably get wide open a couple times on a square out or a square in. And where's James? Oh, he's outside. He's inside. you got to worry about that. Here comes TJ Simmons on the hot potato player. Here he is going in the, you know, uh, a play action, just dragging across the middle deep in between the defense. And I like that. I like spreading it out and not doing any things. Again, we, we spent the first half of the season trying to figure out, wait a minute, why are these guys dropping balls? You know, why aren't they as good as people said they were going to be? All right, you have that. You have a half a season's worth of evidence that they can't drop the balls or not making explosive plays. They can't catch the ball. They're not making explosive plays. Stop fighting it. Lean into what you have, which is a handful of guys who have you know probably comparable talent. And if you give them a small number of opportunities, they can make a small number of contributions. And if you have a bunch of guys who can do that, you're going to have a pretty productive offense, provided that they do their mm-hmm. job. I really don't think that they were that bummed out or th- that freaked out, I guess, about the drops. I think they thought it would get better. Um, 
and Brown even kind of leaned into it after the game and said they were pretty good against Texas Tech. I know that the one thing happened that everybody remembers, but they were good. And I mean, that was the best they played this season against Kansas State. And, and again, I'll say one thing, too. They get open. Like, they don't have a hard time getting open. It's just catching the ball is sometimes difficult. Yeah, I think uh, to answer the question on the James in the slot that you mentioned, the snaps, 26 of his 31 snaps were in the slot this past game against Kansas State and 26 of 29, as you noted, against Texas Tech. So that's that's 52 in the last two games when he had played 32 in the previous handful. So. Yep. That seem that seems like the move. That seems like a, something that's going to be permanent. But my follow up to this is, who's outside? Like what? What's or do you just not really have an outside guy? Well, Wheaton's one for sure. Yeah. And again, I don't like I don't like three catches and seven targets. But I think if you throw him seven balls, he's going to make one or two big things happen, and they'll probably be good. The other side, I just don't know yet. Like, Sam Brown played a handful of snaps. We mentioned Ryan had no productivity in the lion's share of snaps. Jennings is, Jennings is probably the number two outside guy, but he's also playing Wheaton's side of the field, right? Yeah. So it's tricky, and they're going to have to work that out. Now, can I think Jennings could probably flop to the other side and be okay. Can he do that right away? I don't know. We'll see. I, mean, I like him over there. It's good. Uh, I saw Esdale playing some outside, so maybe there's a fix there. You might go by committee there. Like, do you have to have a guy who plays 54 snaps and doesn't get you a catch? No. So maybe you find four or five guys who can get in there, and maybe something happens. And you know, maybe somebody can do a, have a good series or a good quarter or a good half or maybe even a good game. Who knows? But what you don't have, you don't have right now. So, again, stop forcing it. and Just use what you have, which is a couple of guys that maybe be able to do something and see if they can play. Switching to the other side of the ball. I thought this was personally maybe the most interesting, the, the, the hardest one for me to answer out of our group of questions this week. I don't mean to pay, play favorites, but D. Sprad, you are my favorite this week. Um, if this defense ends up being top 10 at the end of the year, what does head coach Neil Brown do with the two co-DCs that we have? <laughs> <laughs> so here's a question. Let's let's say this continues. They they do a number on Texas. Um, they they make TCU look like TCU from a couple weeks ago. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not expecting them to beat Oklahoma or shut them down. But let's just say that they they win against Oklahoma because their defense, or they hang with Oklahoma because their defense is not embarrassing. And then they beat Iowa State or they do the same thing, right? And let's just say this defense ends up, you know, it's a seven and three team, and the defense ends up top 10 and this and this and this and this and this you're probably gonna have to have seven wins i think to do this to have this conversation right. but let's say that you want to invite the west virginia defensive coordinator to the broils award dinner which is for the top assistant coach in the country how do you do it well technically west virginia didn't have a defensive coordinator so they can't Right? right. No one. No one officially has that title. Uh, God, how did they right. phrase it? It doesn't uh, have to. Code, it doesn't have to be a coordinator. Whatever. Defensive lead. Yeah, and you don't have to be a coordinator. Joe Brady won it last year for LSU. He wasn't the coordinator, so like it can be defensive lead. It could be defensive line coach. Like, do you invite Jordan Adai, Jamal Leslie? <laughs> do you invite them both? I don't. I don't know how they do it. I think it's going to be a really interesting thing, which probably is a uh, a compliment to the work they're doing here too. To answer the question. I don't know, man. Like, I, if you had asked me six games ago, I would have told you. I mean, I have told you what they're going to do. They're going to try to go out, and, and I think they're going to have a long, hard 
conversation about trying to get John Summerall from Kentucky. I don't think that's much of a secret over there is that Brown and, and, and Summerall are tight and that Summerall is that Kentucky in the SEC in a non-coordinator role. Could you throw some cash at him and put him in charge of the defense? I think that would be appealing. Now, did they have the cash? I don't know. Do they have the incentive? I don't know about that either. They have a good thing here. Here's the other part of this people don't want to you know, acknowledge. Those guys both got to want to come back. And there could be collateral damage. If this thing does end up in a very good situation and you say, all right, we don't need to go out and hire some G-Wiz name to be a coordinator. I don't think Jeff Castile is coming back. Just my personal opinion there. But let's say they have to go out and get a coach. I don't think it's going to be somebody big in this in this situation. here. They're going to lean into the whole thing with a die and Leslie. They're not going to go out and get a big name. They're going to get somebody who can fill in that salary slot. But to a die and Leslie want to be rewarded for this exemplary season by running it back again as co-leads, I would think not, number one. Number two, is there somebody who says, man, I have a school in South Florida. Dye's got some roots here. I need a secondary coach who happens to be a coordinator. I'll go get him. Or if you're an SEC coach and you have a hole in your staff and you want to get somebody who can recruit junior colleges and maybe be a defensive coordinator for you <laughs> and can coach the defensive line, do you look at Jordan Leslie? So it, there's a lot of moving parts here. I think that there's the idea that Brown may get, you know, froggy and try to go get somebody. There's the idea that those two guys might want to go somewhere else if they're not solely rewarded for it. They might not want to do co again. And then what if somebody wants them? I don't think it's unreasonable to think that people are going to look at Jordan Leslie and say, I like this guy. Let's get him. He's done wonders for that defensive line. We need a boost. He knows the South Junior Colleges. Let's go get him. So there, there's a lot going on there. It's not just what does West Virginia want to do. It's what can they do financially? And then what do those two guys want to do separately and collectively? Yeah, you mentioned it, and we kind of discussed it there. Like, who gets the quote-unquote credit for this or more of the credit for whatever happens with the defense, assuming it you know finishes the way it started? And I'm very curious, no offense to us, but forget what we think. I'm curious what – as you mentioned, like the other coaches, the head coaches for programs elsewhere, what are they thinking? Like, uh, who are they going to say, yep, I definitely need that guy? Or are they also wondering, like, well, is, is it Leslie or is it a die or is it both? Or can they do it by themselves? Can they only do it together when it's the two of them? Because, you know, they're synced well. Because I don't think this is normal. I mean, I know that that that. You know, obviously, defensive line coaches work with secondary coaches all the time, but I don't believe this kind of success with two different people calling two different types of defenses here. You know, the 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 rush, the front seven, and the coverage together. I don't think that's normal as far as the success that they're having with it. Um, so this might be the exception, not the rule. And I'm curious how other coaching staffs, head coaches that are looking for a hire in the offseason might look at that and wonder, uh, you know, who's more valuable? Who do I want? Do I want those guys? Does it actually work? Because, um, yeah, I'm with you. I think West Virginia, maybe be- before this all started, this was a temporary thing and and keeping it going wasn't really an option. But the more it works, the more it works. You know, you may not want to mess it up. What's weirder? The the whole thing where Leslie and Adai call plays like on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday – 
you know, and then they're meeting Saturday morning. So when a when a situation arises, a die has already told Leslie what to expect from the defense, and then Leslie just calls. So that's strange, right? Yeah. Or uh, Brown calls plays for eighty yards <laughs> and then flips the clipboard to Jared Barker. <laughs> like the same team is doing this, right? It's kind of strange to me, but heck, I mean, again. The defense, you certainly can't argue with the way they're working, and the red zone, you can't argue with the way that's working too. So, um, listen, conventions be darned. I guess this is um this is unusual, but the success is indisputable. Moving on to another question, uh, this one from S Lofty O three: What is Texas good or bad at, and how does that play into West Virginia's strengths and weaknesses? You got any early thoughts, Mike? If you don't, I got I got a good one that I found well, this morning. All right. Well, they're going to out-roster you. Mm-hmm. I think that's fair. Now, I don't know that that's a huge advantage, though, because they have been out-rostering West Virginia for a long time, and West Virginia has a winning record against them in the Big 12. So, I don't know. That doesn't bother me so much, but they, they're going to have better guys, and that might win you some one-on-ones. They don't really run the ball very well when it's not Ellinger, and they have a hard time sometimes just un cheap thing, unshackling their passing. I mean, Ellinger was really normal with the ball against Oklahoma State. And that defense is sure pretty good. I get that. But West Virginia's defense is not bad. It certainly belongs in the same conversation with Oklahoma State right now. Um, but they get yards and they score. So, I'm not sure. I think the worst thing that you can probably do is get ahead of Texas in some sense because I think they just kind of throw their plans and playbooks out the window and they say, listen, Sam, go spin make something happen. And he's good like that. Like they got into a certain mindset against Oklahoma state. And this was, this was true also of Texas tech. And you can see it in the overtime game against Oklahoma where it was like Sandlot. It was like, listen, we know what the play is and we know what the coaches say we're supposed to do, but like, we're going to let Ellinger make something happen. And he dances around, he runs for 12 yards on third and eight. He breaks the pocket and gets everybody to chase him. And he flips one to a tight end. who's uncovered. He's just good at that. So it sounds weird, but like the worst place maybe you can be is up twenty-eight to ten or something against Texas, because then they're just going to start freelance. So I think ten league careful, um, and then defensively, I don't know what their issue is. They give up a lot of yards and points. They played some good offenses, obviously, but um, they've had health issues. They looked pretty good when Osai was in there running around wrecking people, and he's back now. So that's a concern on their defense, but. Um, you know, it seems like they're always giving up pass plays too. Wallace had a field day against them. Guys get open, and they've just not clicked defensively. But they've also had a ton of changes with their coordinators in the last couple of years too. So it's been probably hard to get any type of solidarity. I think the biggest thing I'm going to watch for here is on the on when Texas is on offense, West Virginia on defense, the negative plays. That's something West Virginia has been great at: sacks, mm-hmm. tackles for loss, all that. Texas, at which they get those, and then that puts them in great spot to get a stop on third down. That's why West Virginia leads the conference in third down defense, why they're one of the best in the nation. Texas is the worst team in the league for penalty yards per game, worse than West Virginia. They have more penalty yards per game than West Virginia. They are near the <laughs> bottom of the conference in sacks, uh, sacks allowed, excuse me, uh, with 15. That's eighth out of 10. They are bottom half of the country in tackles for so they have a lot of negative plays a lot of negative run plays and a lot of sacks a lot of penalties i think you're going to see them a lot of times in second and 12 third and 
11, you know, third and nine. And that's going to just benefit West Virginia's defense in part because that's when they can pin their ears back and get after Ellinger. And two, because that's not Texas's, you know, strong suit on offense, slinging the ball around, just like you were saying, it's more trying to get it close and, and converting on third and four, third and five with, with Ellinger kind of just slamming into the line for a first down. Watch out for Keontae Ingram too. He'd be left with an ankle injury. Didn't come back. Ankles are fickle for running backs. Um, they're not very dynamic running the ball. He's probably the best they have, but uh, the freshman Robinson's been good. And the uh, converted quarterback, uh, Roshan Johnson, has mm-hmm. been good. But Ingram's by far the talent there as far as like the experience goes. And if he's not there, they have one less horse in that backfield too. Um, and again, I think the one thing is too is you, you probably want to keyhole Ellinger as much as you can. I'm not sure you spy him or anything. West Virginia plays a lot of zone anyways. So you can kind of keep your eyes on him. But, um, man, if you can if you can say, listen, we're not going to let him beat us with his legs. We'll see if he can do it with his arms. We're not scared of them running the ball. That makes the game plan on defense a lot easier. Next question coming in from Dirty Frank, WVU. Did you guys know Kleiman, head coach for Kansas State, had never lost by more than 21 points as a head coach in his career prior to Saturday? I thought Kansas State on Saturday looked exactly like I thought they would in August. That was a bottom third Big 12 team, no? How much do you think that was WVU, and how much was regression to the mean for Kansas State? Well, I was a dummy who said they were the worst team in the conference, I think, right? No, you and I both picked it. No, 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 no. You were the dummy that put Kansas number eight. I, can, I, I just pulled this up. I still can't believe what I'm looking at with my own two eyes right now. Uh, but we both had Kansas State 9. You had nine, Texas okay. Tech 10 and Kansas 8, but we both had Kansas State at number 9. So the first first answer is yes. We, this is a team. This looked like the team that we thought it was preseason at least. But sorry, go ahead. No, well, yeah. So listen, Thompson is a, is is not a great talent at quarterback, but he does what they ask him to do. And their their offense is it's a Kansas State offense, and it's not for everybody. So it takes you a while to figure out what to do. It. And Thomas was just good at it. I don't think he'd fit in a lot of other offenses in the Big Twelve and excel and maybe even start. But he's good at what they do. He understands that he can run. And you put you put a freshman in there, that's not the same. And again, I was I was impressed that he didn't lose the TCU, but TCU's defense isn't good this year, so that's not maybe as impressive. And again, they they struggled against Texas Tech. And needed kind of a gotcha play by Deuce Vaughn to win that game. I mean, the, not to win it, to seal the win. They won it. They were up 24-21 with about four minutes left, and they got like a 75-yard touchdown on the short pass. So um, it's not like he went out and won games. The curiosity was that third quarter he had against Kansas. Did he figure it out? He did not figure it out. That after three plays against West Virginia, he was not going to win that game. And that's what happened. Um, I just think that without a quarterback to run that offense, you're not going to get a guy that's going to come in and flip it around to those receivers and, and light you up. They don't have that. And if you can't pass, you're not going to run the ball against West Virginia. They're going to spill you outside. They're not going to let you get run north and south. They're going to outflank you on the edges and tackle you. And that's what they did to Vaughn all day to the point, like, just rewatching it. I, I think that they were discouraged to even can, like, incorporate Vaughn after a while because he just couldn't get anything going. And, you know, losing the tight end hurt, too. That was a big deal just as far as their offense coming apart. So thing is that West Virginia shut down Vaughn, and West Virginia literally knocked Riley Moore out of the game. And West Virginia – kind of understood like where Howard was going to go with the passes. They, they knew he was going to go to the short side and the flats a lot when he came back to stuff. And that's why they kept pounding guys when they caught the ball on the short side of the field. So they had a good game plan. They had a lot to do with it. But again, um, how how they were 4-0, oh, 
I don't know. That's good coaching, I guess. And it's also probably some watered down competition, but um, a lot of West Virginia and a lot of understandable stuff from Kansas State. It was going to be hard for them to be good, especially when they realized their quarterback just didn't have it. And West Virginia could say, you know what? We're going to play zone. You're not going to beat us over the top. We're going to run and tackle you. We're not going to let you run it. You're going to have a ton of third and longs, and we're going to get off the field and win this game. And that's exactly what happened, which is a credit to what the Mountaineers did. Yeah, it was kind of like I felt like that that cop at the end of um, the usual suspects uh, with Kaiser Sose, except the mm-hmm. exact opposite, because it, it felt like at, at the beginning <laughs> of the week, it was like, hey, Kansas State's, Kansas State's pretty good. And then all of a sudden, as we start looking at these stats, as we start seeing this stuff come in from Vegas, as we're talking about it throughout the week, it's like, are they that good? I don't think they're that good. And then you get as the week went on and we just kept, it just kept feeling more and more like that way. And then, like you said, it was the third play maybe that it was like, Nope, that they're, they're, they're bad. Oh my, they are terrible. Um, and West Virginia should be embarrassed if they lose this game. I don't care if Kansas state's in the top 25, they should not be here. And so I think it, it was more of a regression to the mean. We noted before the, before the game, like, Hey, that, They've beaten some bad teams, and then, of course, everybody's going to talk about the win over Oklahoma, and you go back, and I hate to use the word fluke, but, like, four turnovers and coming back from 20 down, like, that one's that, – that, that's just wild. That's that's wild. That doesn't happen very often, and I think that skewed a lot of people's perspe- uh, perspective of Kansas State. Uh, next question. It is probably the nature of the beast for fans to find fault in their quarterback. Pro Football Focus seems to have a much better opinion of Jay, Jared Dagey than most of our fans. Are those numbers they put out kind of skewed, or is he actually playing better than most of us are giving credit for? Salty Dog, 8159. I think what people will tell you is that quarterbacks and linemen on both sides are what drive coaches crazy about Pro Football Focus. It can be really kind to quarterbacks, like adjust the completion percentage, for example. Um, that counts the balls that are dropped in your completion percentage, right? That's kind of weird. And then it's it's really picky about offensive linemen and defensive linemen. So you have to use the numbers as part of your collective thought process and give him as much stock as you want. I've watched him play the last two games. I think he's been really good. I mean, the yardage is fine. The completion percentage is fine. But, like, little things he's doing are really good. And I'll do this in the screen share this week, but – he makes a really smart play. I don't know how much it is on him and how much it is on the sideline with a check, but they check into something, and then he's going to get sacked, and he might lose the ball, but he needs a split second. And he steps forward and throws the ball, and he hits Bryce Wheaton in stride, and it turns in that long gain after a short pass. And it's kind of an imperceptible thing, but he makes that play happen by just moving up a little bit. I think his footwork has been a lot better. I think he gets caught with the ball too much still, but it's really weird because – he is quick sometimes with his decisions. I think, you know, you look at things like, you know, bopping that RP on the end zone where he had the, the Tebow jump pass play to Sam James, but that's not something he's going to do a lot. He is going to hit that short slant in the middle. He is going to run a bunch of RPO stuff and flip it out to tight ends and backs. If you look at like just the small silo of what he's going to do on the regular, I think he's been fine at it. The trouble is he doesn't press the field very much, very well. And they do have him do that a lot. Just not what he does very well right now. And some of that's his receivers, and some of that maybe is coverage. But look at just the conventional stuff that he does most of the time. He's been really good at it, and I think he's getting better. And I'll say this too: you've seen a number of games this month or this past month 
what it's like to have a quarterback for six straight games. And we've seen teams that have not had that, and they have struggled offensively, and that has to do with some of West Virginia's wins, Virginia's defensive numbers, and that's probably why West Virginia's offense, what we talked about, where it stands with yardage and points per game, both of the season and the Big 12, but that's because they've had a quarterback who's frankly getting better in these past two games. Um, people are picky, and they see the mistakes, like, again, missing James in the end zone or you know overthrowing a pass that maybe should be there, and those things matter. But, like, he's not perfect, and I think he's fewer now than he made before, and he's getting better at the stuff that they're asking him to do most often. As far as a, a fan's perspective goes, uh, you covered the, the pro football focus angle of that pretty well, but I think the the fans, it's really like he, because I'll be, I'll just flat out say it. The first two, the last two games for the first couple drives, he's had some egregiously bad throws, just terrible throws, some big misses. Um, and, and, you know, make the argument of it, it counts more or less, whether it's early in the game or not. But I feel like fans see that and that's it for them. I mentioned it after the Texas Tech game. He was he missed some terribly open throws early. And yeah, there were the drops later, but early he missed a couple bad throws. He missed a couple bad throws against Kansas State. He had that shot put look and throw on a couple out patterns, missed the Sam James pop pass that was wide open. And I think fans just kind of check out after that, but you have to stay focused. You, you, you can't just say, oh, you stink, and that's it. Because then he was really good after that in both games, really good. And, you know, so I would say, do I think he's, you know, grading out in like the 90th, 90, 95 or whatever it was that Pro Football Focus gave him? Probably not. But I think maybe the like for stretches, he's looked like that guy. And and he can be that guy maybe for a game. I don't, you know, I'm not ready to proclaim that for a whole season and stuff. But it, fans are are seeing a couple of those bad throws early and just checking out on him. When I think he ends up for the whole the you look at the whole picture, pretty darn good. Yeah, let's wrap up with our last question here. And speaking of the fans, uh, this one's from Dub V Got M. Do you feel as though there's some weird negativity that exists among WVU fans? It feels like we lose to Texas Tech, and the sentiment is. Oh my God, WVU lost to a terrible team. Then WVU beats Kansas State, and the sentiment is, yeah, but K-State isn't that good. Not saying that's incorrect, but it feels as though some revel in the misery. Our losses are viewed as worse than they are, and our wins are viewed as less impressive than they are. Wait, is he talking about me? Because didn't I just do that? Yes. (laughs) Okay. I'm reveling in the misery. It's a great question, and it's just a great question psychological phenomenon that comes with being a West Virginia, but probably a sports fan in general. Listen, you always are the hardest in the ones that you love and you're always reluctant to give praise or credit to the people that you want to see do the best. And you hold those who are close to your heart with the most stringent expectations and demands. And um, you're never going to be too happy or too sad. And to the fans' credit, they stick with it because there is a pattern. There have been books written about this. And I don't think it's anything that's probably too unusual. And I think, honestly, you can look at what you just said and say, but that's actually accurate. Like, that's a torturous description, but it's kind of true. Like, the reality is reality. You can't do anything about that. Um, They lost the game. They probably should have won. And they beat a team that probably isn't as good as their ranking indicates right now because of the quarterback situation and some issues on offense. But still beat them. But you still lost the game before it. So what you have is like it's a 40 degree day. And that's kind of like what happens sometimes when when you're in a process like this for a team that just doesn't 
doesn't have the the X's and O's or the or the roster to go out and, and just hammer people away, but also isn't a lost cause and is capable of punching up and beating the ranked team, but can also have a bad day. So you know how I do those expert pick uh, roundups every Friday with, mm-hmm. with with people from around around the industry. One of those people that's usually included is Ben Kirchival, who I think a lot of WB fans will know at least by the last name, and he picked. West Virginia to flat out lose to Texas Tech and then to completely win and cover against Kansas State. And I think he was the only guy for CBS Sports to do that. And maybe the only guy out of all the the, the, the experts and analysts that I kind of round up and put into that piece. And I thought to myself, not that he's a WVU fan, but obviously he's very familiar with the program and the state and everything. And I said, yep, that guy gets it. He knows. I think he's exactly right, and I think he's picking along the same lines with the same thoughts that you kind of just described right there. All right, Mike, I think that's going to wrap it up for us today. Uh, we have a lot of questions that, that we just answered there. we got a few more that um, – actually, a lot more. We, we, like I said, we had a good number of questions, and we will wrap that up in a mailbag later today. Your texts from game day are also up. Tuesday, we got a couple of recruiting updates coming up. We'll have Neil Brown later today. Neil Brown again on Tuesday and kind of move forward with the week. It's big Texas week. We're going to have all, all our usual coverage and everything you can possibly imagine. Um, and that's it for this time. But until next time, I'm Chris Anderson. I'm Mike Kazaza. Thanks for listening.